Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of What's the Res, where we bring you insight and analysis on the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. Today, Dr. Jason Brennan is joining us to discuss the current LD topic and resolution in a democracy, voting ought to be compulsory. So Jason Brennan is Robert J. and Elizabeth Flanagan Family Professor of Strategy, Economics, Ethics, and Public Policy at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University. He specializes in politics, philosophy, and economics, has authored 13 published books, and has an additional six under contract with Oxford and Rutledge. He has a BA from the University of New Hampshire and a PhD in philosophy from the University of Arizona. Dr. Brennan, welcome to What's the Res. Thanks. Thanks for having me. No no problem. We're so glad to have you here today. And so I guess... We've got a we've got a lot to go through because we've I've been looking through this compulsory voting Josh um, as well for a couple of I guess about a month now we're about halfway through this resolution sort of lifespan. Um, Dr. Brennan, do you want to just start off by talking about your work, current projects, um, your time at Georgetown, anything? Just give us a little background on what you what you do and why you do it. Yeah, you can think of me as working on the intersection of politics, philosophy, and economics, which means normative questions typically that require an empirical background. So if you ask questions like you know, should we have compulsory voting in order to evaluate that kind of question? You need to understand the political science that explains how compulsory voting works, what it does or what it doesn't work, uh, what it does or doesn't do, but also brings in questions of justice and fairness and how we think about those in a sophisticated way. Um, so I'm always interested in those kinds of questions. And I often look for things that are relatively controversial just because I find them more interesting, not because I'm trying to be contrarian. Um, right now, the the main thing I've been thinking about is trying to come up with an account of what it is to be a good political representative, uh, because the theory that we sort of teach people in sixth grade, I call it sixth grade civics, is largely incorrect. And it turns out that when most voters are voting, they're not actually endorsing the platform of the people they vote for, which throws a wrench in theories of what it is to be a good representative because we're, we're in a sense, not making promises to people and they're not even really voting for us because they believe in us. So then what do we do when we, when we lead? Interesting. And how did you find yourself at the intersection of these fields? Like what, what sort of drew you to be at the middle of all of this and, tr- and ask the larger questions and sort of nail the specifics along with it. Cause that sounds a lot like Lincoln Douglas. I was, I don't know, Josh, if you're thinking the same thing. Um, that's ig- almost exactly this style of debate sort of aligns with that value structure. So what drew you to these fields? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, in academia, uh, you're usually rewarded for specializing very narrowly in one sort of topic. Um, and somehow I've been rewarded for not doing that. Uh, I think it comes down to most of the questions I find interesting. I, I'm, in a sense, I'm trained to be a political philosopher, but I'm really become a political economist. And the questions I find interesting are always ones that cannot be answered with just pure normative theorizing. So I have colleagues that all they do is ask, like, here's some concept, and let me just evaluate that concept and try to analyze what the concept means. I don't ever need to read a single political science journal or know anything about how markets work. I just, all I need to do is engage in philosophy. But the questions that I find interesting just happen to have been ones that can't be asked in isolation. Um, and then my career has just sort of taken me down a path where now I'm always teaching classes that are on the intersection of these things and publishing on the intersection of them. Uh, and yeah, I, I just think those questions are more interesting. That is really interesting. I, I think in part because uh, if it, a lot of what you just said, uh, I, I have a lot of friends who have gone down the traditional academic route and they find exactly what you just described in terms of really the reward is for the super specialist and the path is publish in your specialty and then continue writing in your specialty. Uh, now, uh, you mentioned something else I want to follow up on. Um, could you tell us a bit more about what you mean by normative questions? And uh, by that phrase, are you asserting that there are norms that we as a society should follow? Great. Uh, so a normative question would be something that asks about what's right or wrong, good or bad, just or unjust, evil, vicious, v- uh, virtuous, and so on. Just evaluative kinds of claims. So normative means something with regard to that. And that's opposed to, say, empirical or descriptive claims, like what causes what? You know, how, how does this thing function? So if I say, like, if I, are, if I said, like, the minimum wage causes unemployment or something, I'm not evaluating, I'm just making a claim. If I say the minimum wage is more fair, I'm, I'm making a moral claim. Um, and I think, you know, there's this weird thing that happens, I think, because a lot of people only get philosophy from their English teachers. And for some reason, uh, we sort of dogmatically teach people in like K through 12 education that there's facts and there are opinions and moral evaluations are always opinions and therefore they can't be facts. That's actually an incredibly controversial thing in philosophy to assert that. But students come in thinking it because they were taught it in third grade. Um, 
But you know, I would just say most people think that there are norms and they're not merely a matter of opinion. So if you think, if you think we should be tolerant and if someone's like, no, no, you don't understand. I really like being intolerant. You probably don't think that's a justification. If someone says you shouldn't be a Nazi and Hitler was evil. And if Hitler came along and said, no, you don't understand. I like being a Nazi and I like killing Jews. You wouldn't think that that's a justification. The function of morality is in sense, it's, it's not like a personal preference. The purpose of morality is to bind people together, someone apart from their preferences. So yeah, I think uh, moral talk presupposes some degree of intersubjectivity or more objectivity um, though whether it's real or not is a deep philosophical question. And is it just me or is it just me or does it always seem like those who would assert that moral or like opinions are and facts are separate in that sense and that morality falls into one of the two categories is always a very one-sided approach. Cause they, those examples that you were giving like would say to the contrary that like there's, you could find morality in a more factual sort of basis it, as long as it's aligned with some objective level of truth. Yeah, I think it's just one of those things people haven't thought about very carefully and they haven't thought about the implications of it. You know, another example would be there's this thing called the reformer's dilemma, uh, which is a classic counterexample to cultural relativism in philosophy. Uh, so cultural relativism says that what's right or wrong for you is just based upon, it's just whatever your society thinks, you know. So basically the French declare something wrong and therefore it's wrong for you if you're French. And we can always ask, well, which society do you belong to? And that's a hard question. But it leads to really perverse implications. So you could imagine it going like this. Martin Luther King Jr. comes along and says, racism is wrong. And someone responds and says, no, no, you don't understand. Cultural relativism is true. And our society condones racism. And then if cultural relativism is the correct theory, Martin Luther King Jr. would have to say, oh, my bad. I made a mistake. You're right. Racism is totally acceptable. Uh, Until I change everybody's mind, it's right. So that's the implication of what it is to be a relativist. So what I end up telling students is you should either be a nihilist, which means you think that morality is like talk of witches. It just means it's just nonsense, or you should be an objectivist. But the kind of in-between relativist view leads to these really perverse counterexamples that no one wants to endorse. Definitely with you on that one, because I mean, in that example, Martin Luther King could just fly to another country and then be deemed correct. And that just wouldn't make sense at all. So... I think I'm, I'm definitely with you there. And I guess to sort of center the, the topic back around and bring these ideas back around to democracy, could you give us your running definition of democracy? How do you define democracy? What do you see as the benefits of democracy, the harms? Just give us like your sort of general overview there. Yeah, good. Um, it's very common in philosophy, economics, political science, sociology, and so on today to use democracy as a broad category. Um, so we would say something like a society, a political system is democratic to the extent that fundamental political power is distributed evenly among all citizens. And you also have to include that citizens is defined in a very broad way. If you say citizens, but you only mean like white males of age 41, then you're not democratic. Um, So all adult people or maybe all members of that society get fundamental equal shares of political power. That's usually what we mean by democracy today. Of course, it wasn't always used that way. Um, Whenever I talk to like, uh, the public, I always get someone who raises their hand and says, but the founder said America is a, de- is a republic, not a democracy. And that's right, but that's just because they were using the word differently back in the 1700s than how we use it today. Um, they were using democracy to mean a degenerate mob, unlimited version of a republican uh, system. Uh, so in the same way that back in the 1700s, the word experiment meant what we now mean by the word observation. So language changes over time. So by democracy, I mean fundamental political power shared equally, though no society is actually fully democratic in that sense. So for example, um, Ethan, I'm going to go ahead and guess that you are a citizen of the U.S., but you probably are not allowed to vote. Um, I'm registered now. I just turned 18. Yeah, like we could assume, thanks. We could assume like maybe two months ago, that would be the case. Yeah, for sake of example. All right, fair enough. Yeah, so, but you were a member of the society, but you didn't have any any voting power. But even then, like- you know, I live in Virginia, so my vote counts for maybe more than someone's vote who lives in California. Um, so it's not really ever fully equal. So um, what's good and bad about democracy? It's pretty clear there's a lot of empirical evidence that in general, democracies are richer than other countries. Their people are happier. They generally seem to be more stable. Uh, they, in a sense, perform better than the other alternative forms of governments that we tried in most measures. In particular, they're very good at avoiding famine. Um, they're good at sort of giving people a voice and in, in giving some incentive for 
uh, the leaders, the people who really run the country, my neighbors, I live in the DC area, my neighbors who are running the bureaucrats who run the country and the generals who run the country, um, they do to some degree answer to everybody else and try to promote their interest and don't merely try to promote their narrow interests. Uh, so it, it outperforms other systems, though, in some sense, it's a low bar because we're comparing it to, say, communist or, you know, not fascist dictatorships or regular old dictatorships or military juntas or, uh, you know, um, absolute monarchies and so on or oligarchical societies. Um, so then, but at the same time, the, we have a lot of issues with democracy in that we know that it incentivizes people to behave kind of irrationally, to be relatively ignorant, to not really necessarily vote their interests or use their votes for the purpose of trying to promote their own good or other people's good. Uh, so it's a, it's a flawed system, but we don't necessarily know of a better system to replace it with. And also there are people that just think democracy is good in part because of things other than its consequences. You know, people argue that in most societies, you have a division between those who rule and those who are ruled. And at least in a democracy, there is no hard division in that way. And so we can all kind of look each other in the eye as equals. Dr. Brennan, let me ask you a quick follow-up question to that. Is, uh, at the, we had, I went to our first tournament with this resolution last weekend. One of the arguments I saw that came up a few different times was uh, one, one, uh, the student would make a distinction between true democracy and functional democracy. And he would define true democracy sort of like you did a moment ago as the kind of this idealistic democracy where everyone truly has equality. But they would basically argue that because there are no true democracies, that we really, uh, that somehow our government is illegitimate. Uh, would you, how would you respond to that kind of idea? Or is the functional democracy that we have that does, even though there's not complete equality for all citizens, uh, even you mentioned kind of the Electoral College distinction a moment ago with different sizes and states and population distribution and so on. Uh, does Do we still have a legitimate form of government, even if it's not as ideal a democracy as we might wish? Yeah, I mean, I'm in a sense the wrong person to ask, because at the end of the day, I'm, I'm basically an anarchist, so I don't actually think anyone has a legitimate government. But I won't defend that position. Uh, uh, what, I would say that like the person who said that almost certainly doesn't believe it. Like If I were in the audience, I would press him and I would pr- get that person to like deny what they're saying. Uh, because what do we mean when we claim a government is legitimate? Uh, Well, that word, typically you mean something like this. It's permissible for that government to exist and create and enforce some rules. And you have some obligation to obey those rules. Um, So we use different words for that in philosophy, but they probably mean those two things. Uh, And so would you say to the student, okay, so you say the government's illegitimate. Do you mean like it's not allowed to exist at all? It shouldn't create any rules. Um, It's not allowed to tax you. It's not allowed to pass any laws. It's not allowed to enforce any of those laws. Uh, If you're like a benefiting from a public school system, you think that shouldn't exist because the government's providing it through taxes. And you just said it's illegitimate, right? Um, If the government says like you should pay a tax to pay for that school, I don't have to. I can just ignore it because as you said, the government's illegitimate, right? That's what it means for government to be illegitimate. It's not allowed to exist. It's not allowed to create lose rules and it's not allowed to enforce them. Uh, and I have no duty to obey them. Do you think that? And I doubt the student would say that. I think what the student probably really means is just he, think, he or she thinks that democ- a pure form of democracy is more just than a less, like a less pure form. Um, but even that's a really complicated question because uh, when we think about what makes a system just or unjust, we don't typically think it's only a matter of the form of the government. We think the substance matters too. So for instance, imagine that we have whatever you, the listener, thinks is the ideal mechanism for making a decision. Whatever level of voting you have and deliberation and any of this other stuff, just imagine, but you don't, sub- you don't specify the substance of what they just, just like they, you know, people get to vote equally and they get to participate the right way and there isn't money corrupting or whatever the other things are you vote on, you care about. And then everybody at the end decides to launch a nuclear war on the tiny island nation state of Tuvalu, or Tuvalu, that's how you say it. Uh, we probably wouldn't think that's legitimate, even though like it was decided democratically. So, and that you can, if you don't like that example, you come up with other ones where uh, the mere fact it was decided the right way doesn't always mean it's a good thing to do. So, I think almost everyone who cares about these issues thinks the form and the way that we make decisions matters, but also the content of what we decide matters. There's limits on what governments can do. Uh, And so the mere fact that something is a pure form of democracy doesn't necessarily make it better. And and the reason I think that is because, uh, well, like think about the question of like, why don't we let four-year-olds vote? 
I mean, here, here's a democratic system. It's called queen for a day. Every, every year we, uh, uh, or I guess every day, every day we like randomly select one person and that person, only that person gets to be president and they can do whatever they want. It's perfectly fair. It satisfies the definition of democracy because, uh, everyone has fundamental equal political power. They have equal possibility of becoming the leader and we randomly select someone and we just happen to pick a five-year-old or some other person who's perhaps deeply ignorant or deeply incompetent or has really evil views. Probably most people oppose that when you suggest that to them. And the reason is because they think it would be a disaster, right? But it's, it's certainly more fair and more egalitarian than uh, the way that we practice democracy in any modern nation state. And in fact, things like that were what the ancient Greeks used. They used sortition and they used lottery devices to choose offices quite frequently because it was fair and more equal. But so again, equality is great. It's only one of many values that people are weighing when they're endorsing democracy. That's interesting because that, in at least in the debate world, when we're trying to make you know like a case for or against compulsory voting, it seems like equality is the main point of contention, and that's that's what we're solely going to focus on. I mean, the sort of the whole idea around compulsory voting, to my understanding, is that when you promote equality, you promote democracy because that's like the the pillar that democracy stands on. But mm. I I I like what you're saying there about I guess how democracy sort of has a necessary hierarchy. Like we can't let you know, four-year-olds vote or four-year-olds become queen for a day or king for a day, I guess. And I guess, so maybe a flawed democracy is less flawed than it appears to be, is what you're saying. Or maybe this strive for equality is actually hurting democracy more than it's helping it to a certain extent and or wherever the lines end up being drawn. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even want to make as strong a claim as that, but those are all very good points. It's just to say, if someone were making that kind of argument to me, I would start thinking about some of the perverse implications of it and ask them, is that really all they care about? Uh, and, and, you know, equalizing things, is that really good? We, we often use the word democratic as like kind of a celebratory word, like to be democratic is to be good. And when I say the word democracy, people hear angels kind of singing on ah, the background and all of that. But there are lots of things we can do that make things more democratic and more equal that wouldn't be necessarily desirable. Like we could have every single day, every single citizen has to vote on every single law. And if they don't all like agree on that law that day, then they all get overturned. No one wants to do that because it would be overly costly and time consuming and impossible to work, but it would certainly be more democratic having a a legislature that had 40,000 members rather than, uh, you know, 535 members would be more democratic in a way. It wouldn't necessarily be better. It might be less functional. Um, having, having no kind of constitutional constraints in the exercise of power and allowing the democracy to do whatever it wants would be more democratic, but it would not necessarily be better. So, right. it, so when people say it's more equal, it's like, great, but that's not necessarily by itself like a complete justification for uh, changing, you know, putting in a particular policy. Interesting. And how would you say that compulsory voting as not necessarily a mechanism of the governing itself, but choosing who gets to govern and, you know, deciding how many people get to vote, whether it's everyone with a small, you know, like Australia has it with a fine attached or Brazil. Um, how does compulsory vid- voting sort of fit into the picture? And can you explain your stance on it? Um, I'm referring mainly to your article about why compulsory voting would be a disaster, even though maybe not so much of a disaster as the, as the title may make it out to be. What's your sort of stance on compulsory voting and why? Yeah, good. Um, I'm glad you brought up that. Uh, there was an op-ed in the New York Times a few years ago, and a, a secret that you might not know if you read newspapers is that editors and magazine editors and so on typically choose the title, even if the author chooses the content. And so, you know, there's famous articles like Milton Friedman, this economist wrote this article that said the social responsibility of business is to increase profits. Uh, and everyone was like so upset about that, but he even picked the title. It's like what the editor chose, right? It's just, so beware of titles, just read the uh, actual content of the piece. So I have, I have two basic worries about compulsory voting. I'm pretty skeptical about it. And the, the real worry is, is this, like not, it's not even the one that's in that piece. It's, I think in general, in a liberal society, you should not force people to do stuff unless you have a pretty good justification. And then I just don't think the justifications that people have offered for compulsory voting are very compelling. So in a a book I wrote with the political scientist, Lisa Hill, where we're debating this, I try to go through a number of of consequential based arguments about why it would supposedly produce good consequences, but I think the evidence isn't really there. And then these kind of fairness based arguments, and I don't think they really work. And finally, I think there's just a better alternative. If you care about compulsory voting, there's an even better alternative to universal compulsory voting, which I think just defeats the case for it. And that, so I don't think it's, there's a good argument for it. And so by default, by default, we shouldn't have a law that says everyone's required to wear a red t-shirt on Tuesday. 
Like it's a mean thing to do to force people to do that. So if we're going to make them do it, we better have a good justification. If we can't come up with a good justification, we shouldn't do it. So that's kind of like the main argument. But the secondary argument is really uh, if voters, as we have good evidence, they are largely misinformed and the people who are not voting right now are more misinformed than the people who are voting, which we have evidence for, then one of the things we do by forcing more people to vote is increase the level of political ignorance and decrease the average level of knowledge of the voting electorate. And that's a bad thing. It's, it's an undesirable thing. And even if you think that it's not so bad that we should, you might still think we should have compulsory voting despite that, I think you have to admit that it's a bad thing. If I, if I could wave a magic wand right now, that would reduce the typical, the average level of information among the voting population by say 35%. You probably wouldn't want me to wave that magic wand, but in a way compulsory voting is a bit like that magic wand. Could you run us through um, some of the major arguments people make in favor of compulsory voting? And also, uh, what is the alternative that you yes, see there? Yes, I was just thinking the same thing. I'm very curious about that universal voting alternative. Yeah, good. So let me, let me start by giving you what I think might be the best argument for compulsory voting. There's, there's hundreds of them. Some of them are absurd. Some are pretty good. Some are terrible. Um, uh, I mean, to give you an example of an absurd one, I was once debating a uh, a politician in Canada, I guess I won't mention his name because he was sort of embarrassed by this. And he said, well, democracy, voting is how we consent to government. So we have to force people to vote in order to get them to consent. And I was like, you want to force people to consent? And he's like, oh yeah, that doesn't really work, right? But people say, people do say stuff like that. It's out there. So there are terrible arguments and that you can wave off really quickly. But the best one, I think, goes something like this. We know that uh, the electorate, the people who actually choose to vote are not completely identical to all the people who are eligible to vote. So, for instance, um, until recently in the United States, it was skewed that uh, white people would vote at a higher rate than black people. But now that's probably not true anymore. Nevertheless, rich people vote at a higher rate than poor people. Uh, better employed people vote at a higher rate than unemployed people. Higher educated people more than low, less educated and in general, you see that more privileged people vote at higher rates than less privileged people. Even though, empirically speaking, people don't vote their narrow self-interest, they tend to try to vote for what they perceive to be the, the interest of their nation. Uh, despite that, you might still worry that under a voluntary voting regime, people will be implicitly biased or implicitly misinformed in a way that when the privileged people vote, they'll vote for things that promote their interest at the expense of others, even if they're not trying to do it. And so people say we need to get the underprivileged to vote at a higher rate. Now, one solution to that would be to try to make it easier for them to vote, give them the day off, pay, even pay them to vote or something, like do the things that Australia does, make it, make it so that there's more voting booths everywhere. Um, that could maybe make them vote at a higher rate. Or another alternative is to just sort of penalize them for not voting. Um, and the argument would be if we could force everyone to vote, then we will make the actual voting public, the actual people who choose to vote, representative and equivalent to the people who are eligible to vote. And then as a result, the democ- our policies and leaders will better reflect the real preferences of the country rather than merely the preferences of those who turn out. So that's, I think that is the, mm, the best argument for compulsory voting of all the ones that I've seen, but I nevertheless don't think it's compelling. And I guess that that would make it the nation more democratic, right? Like, because I guess technically you have a more representative sort of pool, but you're saying that may necessarily be a good thing because I think I'm going to butcher this quote. I think it was from that New York Times article or something that you wrote where you lower the intelligence of the median voter, some kind of idea related to that. Yeah, I, I don't want to say it's intelligence because I think that's the... Yeah, I know. I was trying not to the, look for the word. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's, it easily gets switched into that because I, uh, it, it turns out people are very badly informed, but it's not because they're dumb. Uh, it's because of their incentives. Uh, so an analogy for this would be, imagine you were taking a final... Imagine you took a class in college, like you go to UC Berkeley and they have, I think Biology 101 there has like a thousand students. And imagine the professor said, I'm a complete egalitarian in this class. So uh, instead of you getting your own grade, I'm going to average everybody's grade together. Um, so 13 weeks from now, you'll all take one final exam that'll be worth 100% of your grade. Uh, so, and then I'll average them together and then you'll all get the same grade. Now, e- economists have done experiments with this. The average grade ends up being an F. So the reason this happens is not because the people are stupid or incompetent or unable to learn. It's because you have perverse incentives. Uh, It creates a phenomenon that economists call rational ignorance, which means you don't know something because you don't think, because the cost of knowing it exceed the benefits. So for instance, uh, 
I, when I was in high school, I knew lots of things that I've forgotten. Like I used to be, I was better at speaking Spanish when I was a senior in high school than I am now because it hasn't really come up. I used to be pretty close to fluent in Latin, not fluent in Latin, not anymore. I was a chemistry major for an, as an undergrad for a long time, but I've forgotten almost all of that. I've even forgotten things like in my dissertation, in my own published work, because it just doesn't come up. So that's an example of rational ignorance. I forgot the phone number of my girlfriend when I was 19. I don't know what that was. Rational ignorance. So voters, um, if your vote doesn't matter very much, then you don't have a strong incentive to be informed. And so what you tend to find in is that the people who know a lot about politics are the people who find it interesting. Or if, they just been, if they're super highly educated, they might know a little bit more because you remember more. But even education, as an independent variable, education has a very weak effect on people's knowledge. The main predictor of whether people are informed or not is simply whether they think politics is interesting. Uh, so what you get, the turnout is mostly... Uh, sort of tribalistic um, partisans who do the most voting and then the people who stay home are the ones that just don't really care that much and thus don't know much. But then in terms of like, you asked me about the um, what's the alternative, what I think, and I, I haven't heard a good response to this yet, even though I've debated a number of people about this. Uh, when people say, okay, we need democracy to be representative. We need the people who vote to be similar to the people as a whole. And under a voluntary voting regime, we don't have that. That's true. By the way, we don't have it under compulsory voting regimes either. Australia still has only, like, despite the government saying they have like 93% turnout, in the reality, it's more like 81% because a bunch of people don't register to vote who could. So uh, even then, you still have more privileged people voting around less privileged people, but it's closer to being representative. But there's an even better alternative. Uh, you just use a lottery system again. You say, Every, every four years, we're going to have an election. We will select 20,000 people at random. They and only they are going to vote. We don't let anyone know who's going to vote until ahead of time. We have a law that says um, that they have to be allowed to have time off from work. Uh, and you might even pay them to vote. Instead of forcing the vote, you like pay them $1,000 or something and say, we're going to pay you to be an elector. Uh, the advantage of this is it's actually better than compulsory voting for a couple of reasons. One, it's cheaper. Two, it takes less time. Like, you know, when you think about a jury, when we select juries at random, we don't force everyone to serve on a jury. We try to make sure we have enough people. So we select like 12 people to do it. But three, it's actually more representative for the following reason. Uh, if you, the listener goes on, you can look at something called the MIT Voting Project, and they'll give you information about things like counting error rates and problems with counting votes. This is going to be a problem in the coming election because there is a certain amount of mail that gets lost. And so there are going to be miscounts. I'm not saying mail fraud. I'm saying just honest, like good faith people mess up. And the more people you have voting, the higher the number of people, the miscounts you get. So in, in the book, uh, Compulsory Voting For and Against, I do some... Um, mathematical analysis of this. And I say, it turns out if you could force all 210 eligible, uh, 210 million eligible American voters to vote, the error rate in counting is higher than if you randomly select 20,000 people and have them and only them vote. There's a statistical question of like, what's the probability this doesn't reflect um, the population as a whole? And you can run some basic statistics. And the error rate for that is lower than the counting rate. So I always say like, oh, what you don't really want to force everyone to vote, you want to randomly, if you care about representation, select a random subset of the citizenry and have them and only them vote. You get representation and it's cheaper and it's more accurate. What else do you need? And then the rest of us can spend the, the day off. And we're all equal too, because you and I have equal eligibility to be selected. So That's, the equality where does this there, fit into the debate, Josh? Where does, like, where can well, we use that? I mean, you could use that as a... a, a Nobody that I heard on Saturday ran that argument. So, I mean, if, it's like if an affirmative counterplan. Basically, I mean, it's yeah. like, okay, I mean, and you could easily, I almost think you could almost get away with calling that some kind of limited compulsory voting because everyone is mm. compelled to vote, but only a limited number of people are going to be selected to exercise the, or to fulfill the compulsion. So I think it would, it would fit the language of the resolution. But what I'm yeah, curious about there is like the, does that... I'm 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 trying to figure out the equality there because I mean if you pick twenty thousand people from South Dakota, as opposed to twenty thousand people from Uptown Manhattan, you are getting a wildly different twenty thousand people. So would this have to be like? Would there be parameters on like how you would get your twenty thousand, or would this be sort of like a? I mean, would this be like national polling statistical variable type rules for how do we 
account for the divergent views across the ge- across geography and different subgroups and so on, or is it just purely random and twenty thousand names are tossed in, or all citizens are tossed in a generator and twenty thousand are spit out and they are the they are the yeah. ones? Like, how does that work? Yeah, good. So the the equality portion of it comes from the fact that everyone has equal eligibility. Um, in the same way that if we said we're going to make someone president, and we pick them at random. We're going to use sortition for that. If everyone's equally eligible, then we pick you and you become president and you now president and I'm not, but we had equal eligibility. And that's much more fair than a system like ours, where someone with the last name Kennedy is much more likely to be elected president than someone with the last name, like, uh, I don't know, pick an ethnicity that people discriminate against. Someone who comes from a rich family is much more likely to become president than someone from a poor family. So you have equality because it's equal eligibility. And this is why one of the reasons why Athenians use sortition so often in their democracy was because it was more egalitarian, um, though it might be undesirable in certain respects. As far as the question of like making a representative, that's where that those the statistical analysis comes in. It's like if you random like when you're polling Americans, if you randomly select 20,000 Americans, it is possible that you will, through bad luck, get 19,000 people from South Dakota who all happen to be Southern Baptists and you know, and their favorite heavy metal band is Iron Maiden, but probably not. Like it's extremely unlikely. 20,000 numbers actually is actually a really good number for just selecting them at random. The probability that you will get a non-representative sample, like the, the probability that 20,000 selected people does not represent the public as a whole is less than 1%. And if you're wow. worried, if that's too high for you, uh, and, and you have the confidence interval. I don't remember off the top of my head, but the confidence interval for that was like really, really good too. It's like very narrow. If that's too much for you, you can make it 30,000 people or 40,000 people and the, the error rate gets lower and lower. And if you're still worried about that, you could do a thing where, you know, you randomly select the people and then you could run a quick check to see if it is one of these exceptional cases. And if it is, you throw it out and randomly select another 20,000 people. Like, so this is the kind of thing that like can be done with it by a computer very quickly and we don't have to worry about it. On the other hand, if you do what Australia does, you still get a non-representative sample of voters. It's just more representative than what you get in the United States. So, the Australia data was used a lot. So that, that's going to be really helpful to any debaters who are listening to this. And just uh, digging into the misrepresentative nature of Australia's voting patterns could be really helpful. As a side note, I would love to meet even 1,000 Southern Baptists whose favorite band was Iron Maiden. If you ever find those, <laughs> there are, please there write that article. <laughs> <laughs> there probably aren't a lot of people like that, but yeah. And where do, where do voting barriers fit into all of this? Do you, are you, do you think that maybe instead of having a system of compulsory voting or the immense random selection that you just described, if we just made it easier to vote that we would get a, a more legit, or I, I don't want to use the word legitimate because we just talked about legitimate governments, but like a more representative turnout. Because yeah. a lot of people, one of the main arguments in favor of compulsory voting is we just need compulsory voting to get to make it so that the government can't put barriers in place. I'm referring to voter purges or maybe, you know, like have what you described as Australia doing where you had more voting locations. And with compulsory voting, it's just a policy mechanism for solving that problem quickly. Is there, again, a better alternative to be had here? Or are we just looking at somewhere where the harms are greater than the benefits if you do a quick analysis? Yeah, I mean, it's a good, great question. And and the way you put it kind of shows the dilemma that you're facing when you advocate this stuff. Because as you said, there are all sorts of barriers that people face to voting. Some of them are institutional barriers where, uh, there might be gerrymandering or there might be people deliberately trying to make it difficult for certain classes of people to vote. I mean, the parties recognize that certain voters are likely to go their way and they're going to try to, they're both going to try to rig voting systems to favor their kind of outcome. Um, They're both doing that. Uh, I'm not here to pick on one party at the expense of another, um, but they both do it. Uh, And so you have these institutional barriers. You also have personal barriers. If you're you know, if you're a single mom who works two shifts a day as a nurse, then come on Tuesday, you might find it incredibly difficult to vote. And if you have to vote in person, and then if on top of it, you have like, do you have someone who can watch your kids? Can you take time off to do it? It might be difficult for you to do this stuff. So the most obvious thing would be, yeah, let's just reduce the cost of voting and make it easier for people to do it. But on top of it, now you have the defender of compulsory voting saying, you know, what we should do to that nurse who's not voting, we should punish her. That'll get her to vote. And it might, it very well, it might very well be that like that $50 fine that you're willing to throw at her um, will get her to vote. But 
you kind of have to feel bad about that a little bit. And you might think it's worth it. Maybe, maybe in the long run that best promotes her interests and you think it's worth it. But, but man, at first glance, you're punishing some, the per, if this person's not voting because they face all these impediments and cost, then you making it, it's like, well, you're going to get smacked around by voting and we're going to smack you around for not voting. Either way you get mistreated, like congrats. It, it, so it does seem like the first thing to do would be to try to fix the barriers and eliminate the barriers. Maybe that's why some countries have things like election days or national holidays. You may often see people saying things like one of the reasons why turnout is relatively low in the United States is because we vote too often. We vote on too many things. We vote too often. You might, if you Google the phrase voter fatigue, you'll see articles about this kind of thing. And in other countries, we ask people to vote far less often and participate less. And it's an easier issue. In most countries, you don't do things like elect your, um, you know, you don't elect a white, you, you elect like a local party member who represents you in parliament. You're not voting on the county comptroller and the dog catcher and your local judge. And you're not voting on the chief executive. You're just voting for like a party, right? So we're asking them to do a lot. Okay. So it's really all about like, instead of just instituting compulsory voting as some umbrella policy that's going to have all these negative things coming along with it, just fix each individual barrier as it comes. It seems like a more direct approach, perhaps. Yeah. And if somebody said to me, well, I don't think I know how to do that, I would say so. But as far as I do think we can pass compulsory voting and that's easy to do. Well, yeah, maybe. But then you still have to ask about the trade-offs. Again, I, I feel really bad if if the reason, Ethan, that like, you know, if it turns out the reason that you're not, uh, I don't know, jogging in the afternoon is because you can't afford shoes. And I say, OK, well, I'm going to I'm going to charge you three hundred dollars a month when you don't jog. It does seem like I'm being pretty mean to you. Like, yeah, like, I, maybe it's worth it, but it just seems kind of awful. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess, is, is there a better way? If there's a problem, you should always ask, is there a better way to solve the problem than the thing the people are advocating? Is there a cheaper, nicer, less compulsory, more effective alternative? And if there is, that, that generally defeats the case because it's never, you know, debates have a for and against feature, but it's never just do this policy or completely ignore the problem. It's always, is this policy the best instrument to solve this problem compared to all the other available policies? And I guess like that kind of folds into the idea you were bringing up earlier about avoiding all the perverse incentives that we can. Uh, I like that you brought the economic term into it because I remember that from an economics class I had before where I think my teacher gave this example of uh, this town saying that for every, it was like infested with rats or something. It's yeah, like for Hanoi. every rat that you catch. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wait, this was a real example. This is not a hypothetical. No, yeah, the Hanoi uh, rat massacre. Uh, oh, yeah. okay. and then people like started breeding more rats to get yeah. to cash out. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's, I don't know. I just recognized it. I thought that was cool. Josh, were you going to say something? Yeah, I just want to circle back to uh, Dr. Brennan's example of the single mom uh, working two shifts. um, I I was in a round last Saturday where somebody brought that up. Uh, I think it was Neg had brought that up. No, AF had brought up how this this mother was going to be enabled to vote now. But then Neg very effectively turned that argument and said, no, you're not enabling her to vote. You're actually hurting this lady even more. Uh, So I think it's a very effective strategy because the... Uh, the affirmative position on this resolution is prone to, I don't know if fiat abuse is a, is a term in debate, but it, sometimes I feel like it should be. The, the assumption that we can simply say, aha, we will pass this policy and all the logistics will just solve themselves. When instead, what you've actually done is now passed a new policy and you have changed the parameters within pe- which people operate, but you don't, if you don't give an adequate window to adjust to that change, it becomes very difficult for people to very quickly shift gears and, and mm. adjust to the new, the new status quo, and you can cause all kinds of additional harm. Mm. And in the debate I was watching, at least, the, uh, now I, I still am I'm in doubt that anyone is going to be severely, eternally harmed by a $20 penalty. That was the amount of money that was in discussion here. Uh, but I do think there's something here about if the goal is to help this lady be able to go vote, well, then just saying you have to or we'll fine you is not an effective way to do it. There's got to be some better mechanism in place to adjust the logistics around there. So I thought that was a very effective example. Yeah. Can I add something to that too, by the way? Because um, I, th- I think you're right that in a way, a $20, maybe $20 is not that awful. Though if you're really poor, that could be like, you know, whether your kids eat this week or something. For me, for me, $20 doesn't matter. But like for some, pe- for some people it does, but we don't want to overstate that. But it does have to be like enough of a penalty to get them to vote, which means it has to overcome whatever barriers they already have. But then think of it as who is enforcing this law? 
it's not going to be angels like me. It's going to be right now across the country, like as we're speaking, there are people rioting and people burning stores down and complaining and protesting because of police violence and the abuse of people through our civil forfeiture system. We have in many towns around the country, like Cleveland Heights, like on Mayfield Road in Cleveland Heights, like you police officers who are listening to this for some reason, you know exactly who I'm talking about. Uh, we use... Um, fine and penalty systems as a way of taxing the poor to get more revenue for inner city. I mean, not for inner city, for cities in general. Uh, and, and these things are disproportionately borne by minorities and the poor. And then people who live in affluent, like white suburbs don't face this kind of stuff. So it might be the kind of thing where the Australian government is really good at implementing this in a kind of fair way. But do you want like the Ferguson police collecting fines from people? You know, I, I don't. So it, it's like if I could have the Swedish government run the compulsory voting system f- on behalf of the U.S., I might well be in favor of it. But I think like given the problems with American criminal justice, I'm not really excited about giving uh, our particular country more power over this. But then again, even you know, the, you're, I don't know if you're debating yeah. about America in, gen- in, in particular, or just countries in general. Well, this one, uh, I mean, the, the resolution, that too is a that's a bone of contention and analysis about whether, because the resolution states in a democracy, uh, voting ought to be compulsory, but it does not state, that doesn't limit it to just America. I I heard Mm -hmm. one very good argument about the ambiguous wording here entails all democracies. So AF is burdened to have a solvent plan in all democracies. Now, even to take, to build off what you were just saying in a slightly different direction, I saw an example today of um, uh, Moscow, Idaho, a police officer arresting a pastor at an open-air psalm-singing protest, which is the strangest protest arrest I have ever seen in my life. To see a whole bunch of people literally holding hymnals, singing psalms, and I don't know a lot about the surrounding details. I haven't dug into it yet. Uh, They don't look disruptive. What they are doing is violating mask laws that are currently operative in Moscow, particularly in the state of Idaho in general. And now, again, I don't know the particulars, but I'm kind of imagining there. I can easily imagine a police force that would rather not arrest a pastor and would rather not be on camera nationwide arresting a pastor. And yet they are obligated to enforce the law. Yeah. And, 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 and so there, there's that twin tension there where now you have people who are obligated to enforce a, a could be obligated to enforce the law in a very uh, just just way that's not there's no way to make that look good. <laughs> it's not like this is a. Uh, horrifying terrorist who is uh, running towards the building with a bomb. This is a pastor who is calmly submitting to have his hands behind his back and he's arrested in front of his congregation while the rest of the people keep singing the 23rd Psalm. I mean, so to be kind of also passing this then brings up the issue of enforcement. So does that mean there's now got to be a whole new bureau of electoral fine enforcement or are police going to be like checking who shows up at the registration booth on the morning of election and then go and visit everyone else? Like how do we functionally enforce the penalty? I think is a really interesting question. It just kind of sounds like the, it's, I guess a policy for promoting the ideal version of democracy, kind of like we were outlining at the beginning of the episode. And even with that, sort of when you look at the the impacts and logistics of it, maybe Australia did something right, because I guess you don't really see every day on the news, you know, people writing about compulsory voting in Australia. But it, this does really seem like a very values-oriented affirmative side for compulsory voting. Like, democracy is important, and then if you press them on why, I feel like you could get somewhere with that in a, in a debate sense. Yeah. So, Josh, do you have any do you have any further um, sort of questions about the compulsory voting side of things? I know I wanted to ask you where you could where we could find that information about Australia and the it's still relatively misrepresentative of the populace as a whole, where that um, data is located. Yeah, you know, if I I could find it, I have a citation to it in the compulsory voting for and against book. Um, so somewhere I I have it, but off the top of my head, I don't remember where I got it. Uh, okay. So, yeah, if you maybe I could like email it to you later and you could like include it with the episode or something and people could sure. get access. Yeah, that'd be great because that's yeah, really yeah. interesting. Uh, really, probably the the only other question I have uh, is is a bit off script, but uh, you you said this earlier, and I'd love to to hear more about this. Uh, you you told us that you uh, you think of yourself as a bit more of an anarchist. Uh, say more. What 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 do you mean by that? And what what does that where where is is yeah? Just just tell us more about what you mean by that. 
Yeah. So it's a, it's a bigger philosophical position. Um, and I say it a little bit tongue in cheek, but one of the things political philosophers want to do is ask, what is a perfectly just, what, what does a just society look like? And it, there's a kind of a simple argument that says, like, imagine I ask you this question, what would criminal courts look like in a perfectly just society? And the answer is they wouldn't look like anything. We wouldn't have them, right? If people are perfectly just, then uh, there wouldn't be criminality in there. And I'm not even saying everyone who acts criminally is, is be doing it because they have an unjust heart. Sometimes it's because of bad things in their lives or forcing them into it. Jean Valjean, you know, steals out of desperation. But in a perfectly just society, that thing doesn't happen. So you don't have that institution. So it's when philosophers and even economists and others want to know why we have certain institutions, we often ask, well, would we have this if people were better? if they were morally superior to how they are. If, we, if they take everyone's morality dial and turn it up to 11, how, how would people behave? So I think it's really hard to argue there'd be anything like government, where what we mean by government is a subset of the population that has, which claims and has a monopoly on the use of violence to force people to stick with rules. That's what we base, that's like what Kafka and Weber and others define the state as or government as and it looks like if we were all morally perfect we just wouldn't need it you know so like what would an ideally ideally just society look like i think it would actually look a lot like um if you ever watched the old cartoon the mickey mouse clubhouse so not the mickey mouse club with annette funicello from the 50s but the cgi animated show the mickey mouse clubhouse that's describing a kind of ideal society where Basically, everyone does the right thing all the time for the right reason, but they don't, except for like uh, Pete once in a while acts badly in order to teach lessons for children. But you could write him out of the story. Uh, and But you don't need government there. They're just anarchists. They just live without, they just follow the moral norms and they have other kinds of coordination mechanisms other than using a centralized monopoly on violence. So that's part of what I mean by saying I'm an anarchist. It's like a just society is an anarchist one. It's not a democracy. It might be that given that we're a bunch of jerks, uh, democracy is the best we can do. So in the same way that, you know, it would be better if we, if, if we were just, we wouldn't have a criminal court, but given that we're not just, maybe we should have one. Um, so we're not just, maybe we should have democracy too. But also I think that uh, demo- anarchy works better than we let on. Um, I'm not, I think it's like a research project. How much can we make the state wither away and use other forms of social cooperation? So for example, uh, um, people used to worry that, if everything were kind of held in common, everyone would like overuse stuff. And this ecologist named Garrett Hardin back in 1968 argued that this means we need to have a massive Leviathan, which controls resources to prevent them from being overused. But then uh, Eleanor Ostrom, who is the first woman to win a Nobel prize in economics, uh, she wrote this book that was published in like, it was 1990 called uh, governing the commons, where she showed actually as a matter of empirical fact, people are able, able to overcome these coordination problems without needing Leviathan to solve them. And the difference was he was kind of like thinking about it in the abstract from his armchair. And she went out and looked in the field and saw what do real people do when they face these problems? Uh, so you could read that book. You could read a book called uh, uh, two cheers for anarchy by uh, Leeson. Um, and there's a few other things like that, where I think it just, I'm not saying that we actually are able to get rid of the state. I kind of wish we could, but I may be not sure of that. But I do think that human beings are able to find mechanisms of social cooperation that don't require institutionalized, centralized violence uh, more than we give them credit for. I think that, I mean, I, I, that makes sense. I mean, that your, your, your anarchy or anarchism is more theoretical than practical than it sounds like. Um, And I mean, I was thinking uh, as you were describing that it, Reminded me of the uh, the the Chaz the uh, the the autonomous zone in uh, Seattle where folks attempted to kind of set up a quasi anarchist state, but pretty quickly they reinvented a police, a military, and they had criminals who violated the law and committed some pretty awful atrocities. Uh, but it's but then you still have that fundamental problem of politics, and it's the same problem that like people have talked about since Aristotle. Uh, since James Madison, I'm thinking of the Madison line. If uh, mm. if uh, if men were angels, we would need no government. But right. we are we are not dealing with angels. We're dealing with real humans. But if we had perfect people, then we really wouldn't have a problem of crime or or require force to make people be better than they otherwise would be. Yeah, um, that's right. And it'd be worth noting, you know, Ostrom would have guessed that Chaz would not work. You know, so if you read her stuff and the people who write about, well, when do anarchistic, when, when do human beings cooperate well together without using violence? There are, they falls under certain conditions and those conditions were certainly not met there. Like it wasn't, it was a predictable outcome. When that started, I was like, this isn't going to work out. And I, I wish it would, but it, I, it didn't. Uh, so yeah, that's right. Um, 
And I, I think the other thing is just, I, I think there's a kind of methodological point that you have to, you have to kind of take a side on. So some philosophers and economists and others, when they start working, their, their default assumption is people should be free unless we can show otherwise. And other people start with the assumption, everyone should be forced to do whatever society wants unless it can be shown otherwise. It's really hard to prove which of those is the right starting assumption, but a lot hinges on which one you pick. If you start with free, unless I can have a good reason to force you to do something, you end up with a fairly liberal and quite democratic conception of like what social life should be like. And if your view is everyone should be forced to do what's best, unless we can give them a special dispensation to act freedom for freedom, then you end up with a very totalitarian or communitarian or deeply interventionist view of society. Uh, so, you know, I think I think the former way of thinking is the right way. Start with the assumption of freedom, and that's the default from which uh, departures have to be justified. You know what's so nice about this whole thing is that I I know like Josh, I know you're in debate mode because you just went to the virtual Duke tournament, and I'm kind of thinking through the arguments too. Is that sometimes it's just nice to think about it? Like the I guess the I'm appreciating the way you're conversing with us about it and sort of drawing out the different options because I know at the debate tournament people are literally just coming for your whole life. And yeah. it's, I mean, people are, it's like, they're acting like they know everything when they don't, but this is really just, I guess, like a really refreshing sort of thing. And the philosophy behind it, I know you brought up the Leviathan, the Leviathan sort of idea and a couple different books we could dig into to sort of get like a background on what all this means. I think it's really good for kind of coming in with a fresh mind to the topic. It's really good for listeners and whoever's going to be debating this topic. Um, so I guess that kind of like that wraps up my thoughts about compulsory voting, but I did want to ask you about college. Because okay. I'm a senior in high school. I've been looking into a couple of different schools. I'm still in that whole, you know, essay writing, applying frenzy, and it could use a little bit of perspective. What, what should a student be looking for in a college? And I know there's a the whole dichotomy of like, whether you should go to college, whether you shouldn't go to college. What do you tell people? What's your kind of thesis on that? Yeah. Well, thanks for asking. It, it turns out I have a whole book on college too, uh, about the bad business ethics of college. It's called Cracks in the Ivory Tower. Uh, and despite working in a college, what a cool title! Wow, <laughs> I love that title. Uh, despite working at a university, and my my career has been at universities. I've and I've only worked at like fancy kind of rich universities too, with like gifted students. Um, uh, at the end of the day, I th- I, this is what I think you should know as an undergrad that they don't tell you. One is you'll forget most of what you learn. Um, uh, one other thing is that. A lot of what we tell you about, well, if we teach you to read Shakespearean sonnets, you won't ever do that in your job, but the skill you'll transfer to your job. It turns out that's been studied extensively by educational psychologists, and it's mostly not true. And that's a bummer, but when you learn the truth, it's, it's pretty liberating. And the most important thing is when you wonder why, like the students who graduate from Georgetown do much better on average and are much more successful in almost every endeavor of their life than, say, the average student at... Um, I don't know, Keene State College in New Hampshire. I'm from New Hampshire, so I'll pick on them. Okay. Uh, so, and you might wonder, okay, well, but you also know that like we have a low acceptance rate and it's difficult to get in and we only take like um, elite students. Uh, we could have an even lower acceptance rate. It turns out, well, I guess the reason we don't accept the common app at my school is because our director of admissions doesn't want to have people apply who don't really want to come. So we're almost have an artificially high one. But think about what that means. We have all these huh. gifted students who come to the school and they do really well. And then you have students who are less gifted going to other schools. They don't do as well in life. But you wonder, what did the school actually add? So how do we know? Well, a series of studies were done by uh, Stacey Dale and Alan Kruger, uh, these two economists. um, And they looked at things like, if you're admitted to Harvard and go to Harvard, how does that compare to a person who's admitted to Harvard, but because of random stuff that happens in their lives, like they're stuck having to be at home because of their mom getting sick or something, or for whatever reason, they just go to like a lesser school a tier down, a couple tiers down. What happens to them? This is what they find. Um, the students who go to Harvard, like who are admitted to Harvard and go there, do basically the same as the students who are admitted to Harvard and don't go. Like the actual fact that you went to Harvard has almost no effect on your lifetime income. It maybe has an effect on like your ability to get into grad school, but it, it doesn't really do much. So if you want to know, like applying to a fancy school, an Ivy League school, uh, one of their peers and so on, is great. But if you don't, if, if you get in and you go to like your state university or some like lesser place, you're going to be just fine. Because the reason you do well when you graduate from Harvard was because you were good enough to get in. That's really the thing. So 
don't, I think student, if you know that, I think it's liberating. You should sweat college and your college choices much less than, than you think. It doesn't really matter as much. Like if you, if you go to like Chicago instead of Harvard or something, and that's like your second choice, it's really not going to matter. Um, you're going, you're going to be happy and you're going to be successful. And it's what you're bringing to the table, not what the college is giving you. That is a refreshing perspective. I mean, that obviously puts a lot more responsibility in the hands of the individual, right? Cause I mean that, I mean, you're completely responsible for your development. You can't just go to a college and expect the institution to morph you into, you know, who you become. Maybe the, maybe the people you meet at the type of college will have some sort of effect on that. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of, that's extremely stressful and extremely liberating at the same time. Cause it's like, it's all on me, but at least yeah. if I can't afford Harvard then, or, or anything like that, I'm going to probably going to be okay. Um, so would you recommend Georgetown as like, who would you recommend Georgetown to? I guess is like, you're a professor what do you like about it? Sort of like you could plug it if you want, whatever you feel like doing. Yeah. Uh, I think, well, I mean, I, I don't think it's, it's hard to plug like any school really uh, because it all depends upon who you are and what you want and what you're trying to get. I think it's Georgetown's a really good school for people who are active. They want to accomplish something. I'm, I mostly work in the business school and I think it's a good environment for people who are go getters and, and have a desire to act rather than simply a desire to like think about deep thoughts. Like you want to do something with your thoughts um, but you know, if you want to be an engineer, we, you couldn't go here. It's terrible. We don't have that. Uh, we're not the best school for the sciences. We're good at some things rather than others. Uh, we have a certain kind of social environment that might not be for everybody. Um, I, I really think it, I think it's smart for you to go to college. If you finish, you will get a wage premium, but it's really just comes down to who you are as a student and what you want out of college and lots of different schools offer different options. So uh, I actually, when I was at Brown University, uh, which is my employer before Georgetown, I, I didn't really like their system. They don't have any gen eds. And at the time, I thought that was terrible. But now that I've actually studied uh, that issue at great length, um, in the Cracks in Every Tower book, one of the things we argue is that the biggest predictor that you'll be forced to take a class is whether the department that offers that class needs the money. Uh, so uh, now come around. Uh, why did it? They have to be that. Yeah, it's a bummer. So I've now come around to thinking that like Brown University is like the most moral university in the country because they just let you do whatever you want. And that's better than like letting you do, forcing you to do what's good for the department that needs more cash. Uh, so, you know, I, I like Georgetown, I like Brown. I like, I think there are lots of great schools. And instead of thinking it about in terms of like the reputation of the school, which matters, but maybe not as much as you think, think of it in terms of like who your peers are going to be which kinds of people do you want to hang out with? Uh, psychology says that like you're, we're, we're all kind of conformists. So you're going to be the people that you befriend or that is who you're going to be. So when you're choosing a, a school, think of it as choosing a peer group and choosing your friends. That's what you should care about. Those are some really helpful observations. Uh, so I've, I've taken on a new role this year as the college counselor for, for my school. And uh, I have a couple seniors who are looking at Georgetown, a couple others who are looking at Brown. Uh, so those are, those are helpful observations. I, I really like the emphasis on uh, it really is about what the, the, what the student makes of the opportunity uh, that the school presents. Uh, I, I'm, and I think for the vast majority of schools, I, I'd be, I'm gonna have to get your book, uh, cracked in the ivory cracks in the ivory tower and take a look at that. Now that you've said that, um, as my alma mater's Hillsdale college, at least claims to be rather different when yeah. it comes to the core. And I think, I think they would be actually different because they, they've made a, now they, they still, they too have an economic motivation, but their economic motivation is from through getting donors to support their vision of a liberal arts core that every student is required to take. So when they create their core classes, that create that that gives them a whole lot of marketing push in in different directions. But I know that's not the case for most schools. I that'd be I'd be really curious to look at your information on kind of how that goes for a lot of schools. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I actually I, for what it's worth, I remember I think I took a quote from Hillsdale's uh, view book and put it in the book when we were talking about hyperbolic claims, like the way college should be or something. But uh, just because I know that they're unusual, so I wanted to put them in too. But I also think you know, if you think about Hillsdale or like a St. John's College where they do have these like very strict curricula, I think they work fine. Uh, I'm not I'm not complaining about them, but I think in part because the students who choose to go to that kind of school do it because they they really are invested in that kind of learning. And so it, it pays dividends for them, which is very different. I think from like, you just happen to go to uh, Rutgers or something and they have 
you're just required to take these 40 class, like well, not 40, you're required to take these 15 classes and you don't really want to, and you didn't go there for that purpose. So Hillsdale, I think works in part because of the selection effect of getting the, they're, they're, they're getting the right kind of student to come who will benefit from what, what they're offering. Uh, I think you're, you're, you're right to cite them for hyperbole. I, I distinctly remember freshman orientation and Dr. Whalen uh, looking at us all very sincerely and telling us that he was shocked we were all paying him to mess with our minds. And that's, <laughs> that's why we had come there. Uh, but they, they at least take their hyperbole very seriously. I, 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 think, there's, I think there's a lot of value to colleges uh, seeing themselves as, as places for serious study. But you're, yeah, that that's how ah, that that's fascinating thing about like the way different people pick different schools and how it really that's I'll bet you're right about the selection effect there that students do pick Hillsdale for uh, for that reason. I had some other thought I was going to go to, and I how do you I guess like from a more I mean you're a full, you're a philosopher right like you have you have a philosophical perspective on things. What's the best way to sort of introspect and and separate out those? I guess values are what you're looking for and then orient that towards a physical selection of a school. Cause I mean, I guess like, I, I know as a high school senior for me and at least a lot of people I know that's, that could be an even harder question than which school is supportive of these values. It's like, well, what, what am I looking for when it comes to that, that you know, even, uh, even more underlying layer? How do you, how do you do that as a teenager? Yeah. Oh God, as a teenager, that really does make it impossible. Doesn't it? Um, and I don't mean to pick on teenagers because I was a teenager once and I know it was like, but there's a real issue we have with choosing courses of life. Uh, another, a nice book to read on this is called Stumbling on, Happy, Stumbling on Happiness or Upon Happiness. And what the main thing that book argues is it's a psychology book is that people are very bad at introspection. And so when we make predictions, we all tend to think we're exceptional and we make predictions about what will make us happy. We tend to think we're unique and everyone else is just a statistical artifact. But in reality, we're like pretty much closer to other people. Uh, so when you're, you know, when you're 17 or 18, you're worried about like prestige. You want to impress your friends with where you got in. You want to show your teachers their investment in you is right. And that means like not only that you get into the right school, but you go to it. We have all these, you've got all this stuff saying like your school matters, your school matters. It seems like it's the whole world. Uh, you, but I, I, at the end of the day, what do you even do you really know what you want to study if you don't then you better go to a place that gives you lots of options and hopefully lets you explore them in a relatively risk-free way because uh, if you because you could change your mind i went through multiple majors because i kept changing my mind i thought i was going to be a neurosurgeon until i was lucky enough to do a shadowing program where i realized that every medical doctor i shadowed was completely miserable and i realized i would <laughs> myself hate my their lifestyle so i think it's more of like don't forget about college just forget about it for a moment and just think what's your best theory of what you'd like to be like when you're 30? Um, and that doesn't even necessarily mean a job, but just like, do you want a job where you think you'll have a lot of autonomy? Do you want to live in a certain part of the country? Do you want, do you need to make a certain amount of money and go ahead and admit if you do need it? Like I need money. I have expensive hobbies. I, ca- I can't afford, I can't afford to be poor because I, I need to have the expensive guitars, right? Some people can't, I nice, wish I was, nice. but I, I'm not, man. So I need the cash. Uh, so like figure out who that person is as best you can in the most generic terms. And then just think of college as a stepping stone for getting you there. And that might mean you go to St. John's. It might mean you can go to any college and you just have to get, it might mean you need a business degree. It might mean that you need to go to a school that's very good at placing people into, uh, into medicine. But you know, it's, it feels right when you're, I remember it was like when I was 17, like it just felt like picking the college was the most important thing. And now looking back it, it, it barely mattered. And I say that as a person who like, I've been in college forever. <laughs> you know, I spent, I spent <laughs> yeah. a year in the real world, real world and gave up and went back. So I don't, you know, it doesn't matter. So little. I mean, that, that title of that book you brought up stumbling into happiness is, is kind of refreshing too. Cause it's like, it's, I was, I was telling Josh cause he, now he's the admissions counselor. He's been, I mean, we've been talking about this stuff since like seventh grade, probably when I joined the debate program that, the university may may not necessarily matter, but even like I was saying that it was kind of like a shot in the dark. I guess going to a certain college may not be a, a literal shot in the dark, but I guess the the side of me that's relatively philosophical and likes to exaggerate would put it that way. Um, it, it almost seems like the development sort of happens on its own, but you could try to guide it where it goes, if that makes sense. I don't know if you would agree with that statement. Maybe there's more act. Maybe there's more 
active investment that you could do in yourself. But the, that title of the reading you were referring to suggested that there's just as much passive sort of development as active, maybe in the group of friends you choose or something of that nature. Yeah, I think that all seems right. And at the end of the day, the people that are most like you are the ones that are the best model for what you're going to be like and what will make you happy. Um, and if you know who those people are, that really does help. One other, one other thing I'd add is just thinking about survey evidence and psychological evidence for on this point. Uh, people have done, I, I can't remember the title of the paper off the top of my head, but I know that people have done, I'm picturing a PowerPoint slide my colleague uses. Like people have done these studies that looking at people who go to, who get into their first choice college and how happy they are when they graduate. And then people who go to their second or third or fourth choice college and how happy they are. And the differences are minimal. You know, like, oh, I had, I, I really wanted to go to Princeton, but I got stuck going to Wash U St. Louis, which is a great school and there's nothing wrong with them. Uh, how, how do they feel at the end of the day? Great. Like, it feels horrible on April when you get the rejection letter, but uh, June, four years later, it doesn't. It feels great. Oh my gosh. Every, like, I don't know, I have no idea how you pack away these random statistics, but it seems like every societal conception that we've relied on on this episode is statistically incorrect or <laughs> for somehow. Which is so cool. That's so cool to think about. Dr. Brennan, thank you so much for joining us. That was an extremely refreshing and insightful conversation. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. It was a, a real joy, and um, I, hope, I hope it helps you. Yeah, it definitely did. And I, I think it'll help our listeners as well. And listeners, if you want to get in contact with us, please do so at whatstheres at gmail.com. That's W-H-A-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-S at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit at whatstheres underscore, or visit our website where we have all of our um, episodes uploaded for streaming at www.whatstheres.com. And until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth. <laughs>